Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. This is War Baby from Murderous Miners Killer Kids Podcast, and you're listening to Dark Poutine, a podcast about Canada's creepier side, with hosts Mike and Scott. Thanks to War Baby from the Murderous Miners Killer Kids Podcast for that intro. Check her podcast out, it's worth it. Uh, links will be in the show notes. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host of Dark Poutine. With me, as usual, is my good friend, co-host, sound engineer, and surprisingly wearing pants today, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Well, hi, Mike. And maybe it's just paint. Paint, get painted on pants. pants. Those are some tight pants you've got. Look closer. No. (laughs) So, uh, shout outs. Uh, Holy crap. I don't know where to start. Uh, Mm -hmm. Our last episode was a very, very difficult one for me. And the love that I have gotten has been awesome. I really, really appreciate it. Some people sent me emails. People have sent me messages on Facebook on and on and on and nobody has been a creep and or inappropriate in any way and i am so so grateful to all the kind words it was really really moving yeah it was moving just uh reading them as a third person because it, knowing you having known you for a long time and knowing you well i know how difficult it was for you to uh be vulnerable yep and i know uh uh yeah i i it I know, and I know how feedback can impact you positively, and so it, it was. I, I it was a beautiful thing to read all the support you got because I knew yeah. I knew it was having a, an impact on you. Yeah, for sure. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and uh, people have left us, you know, lots of great reviews, and and people are subscribing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, thank you, thank you so much. Um, I don't know. I, like, I feel like I need to do something for people and, and repay them. I guess we'll just keep doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll do some more episodes of this. What more do they need from us, though, Mike? I, I am working on some swag. I want to get us some stickers and uh, and maybe some hats and T-shirts and stuff like that. I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking uh, uh, life-size body pillows. With for, for the late for the <laughs> for female the, listeners and males, so they so but well, both of us, Mike. No, no, both I, I don't want to participate in that. Oh, no, just you know, so that after being terrified through the podcast, they can hug it. They they can well, us, Mike, hug us for oh, comfort. For, <laughs> I knew you were sick. <laughs> what what's sick about trying to make people feel better through this, my body shaped as a pillow? <laughs> Wrap my pillow shaped as my body. Well, it, it the bones in the pillow might probably be uh, stronger than the ones in your body. I, yeah, I think my bones actually qualify as pillows. The little brittle bones. <laughs> All right. Well, holy crap. Let's get to it. Mm-hmm. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion and often a sense of humor is strongly advised. There's not going to be a lot of humor in this one. No. 
your hosts are in no way experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We just want to entertain you with the stories we tell. Our fact gathering isn't always the best. <laughs> so put on your toque, grab yourself a double double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. <laughs> looking for more information about other crimes or events. So why why would I do that? Why would you do that, Mike? Tragically, a 25-year-old woman named Mindy Tran was found shot to death behind the wheel of her car in November on November 26, 2017 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Jeez. That case is yet unsolved and may make an interesting one for uh, an American true crime podcasting comrade to take on. Hmm. So you know, maybe do another Mindy Tran episode, but uh, Mindy Tran 2017. Yes. Yeah. As well, another Massachusetts uh, woman, uh, yes, also named Mindy Tran, was in the news. Uh, this Mindy Tran left her twin girls locked in their car seats and ran up to unlock her door. Mindy saw her car begin to roll down the driveway toward traffic. So panicking, she sprinted for the car and threw herself behind it, making herself a human speed bump. Jeez. Yeah, so the car rolled over and she was trapped underneath it. Uh, later on, fire, firemen extracted her and she suffered many injuries, but her kids were unharmed. Jeez, so what I'm gathering from this podcast so far is that if your name is Mindy Tran and you live in Massachusetts, yep, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Don't be named Mindy Tran in Massachusetts. Anyway, uh, so though both those are interesting and, and horrifying and sad. Ev- events yeah. and, and sad because one woman actually died. Yeah, well, and the other one trying to save her kids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they take place outside of Canada. As, and as far as we're aware, uh, they don't involve Canadians in some way. So these stories do not qualify. Quali- I can't say the word qualify today. It's a tough word, Mike. It is. It's actually not very tough. It could be the cough medicine. <laughs> or it could be your ability to speak. It's that. Yes. It's uh, alcohol-free cough medicine for everybody who cares about that out there <laughs> in regard to me. <laughs> then why the hell have I been chugging it? <laughs> I don't know. It's for kids. Anyway, uh, yeah. So they don't qualify as dark poutine, so... We're not going to talk about them. In this episode, we're talking about something a little more somber. Uh, we're covering the murder of eight-year-old Mindy Tran in Kelowna, British Columbia, on or about August 17, 1994. Although Mindy's murder is considered solved by police, the person authorities believe is responsible is not in jail. A note here, as the main suspect in the case has not been convicted of Mindy Tran's murder, we want to be careful not to convict this man in the court of public opinion. There's no actual justice in that. Uh, we may speculate 
and give some opinions on the case, but we'll do our best to stick to what we found through our research. And it, it was like pulling threads off a sweater. This one was like, holy crap. Mm. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll talk more about what I went through research-wise uh, at the back end of this podcast. Many of the details are really murky due to conflicting accounts of what happened, and mm. the truth is hard to uncover. And I don't know how much of it I've actually uncovered here. So Kelowna, uh, where this happened, is a city of around 130,000 people here in British Columbia in the interior. It's about 390 kilometers east of Vancouver. And the drive between the two is a pleasant one through valleys, mountains. It's well worth the trip. I love that oh, drive. Oh, it's a gorgeous drive. It's a gorgeous city. Yeah. Kelowna has been nicknamed K-Town and or Orch Orchard City. And their motto is fruitful in unity due to its early economy being driven by the fruit industry. Well, the interior is uh, well known as a hub for uh, Canada or BC wine and stuff. So fruit is a very, yeah. very... Peaches. Peaches. I like peach pie. So oh, yeah, if anybody wants to make me peach pie, I will send you my address. No, because peach I'm, pie in the mail would be weird. I'm a lemon meringue guy. I'm just saying. Right. People. So anyway... Uh, Kelowna is known for its pleasant climate, but it can become really hot in the summer. So you can cool off in Okanagan Lake. But look out, uh, there happens to be uh, a Canadian cryptid in Okanagan Lake, and her name is Ogopogo. That's a creature that we'll talk about in a later episode. For those who don't know, uh, think about it like this. Ogopogo is our Loch Ness Monster. Fantastic. It's true. It's true. And I think it's a, it's a First Nations name, I do believe. I think so, yeah. Anyway, so let's get into this, this rough one. On the uh, evening of August 17th, 1994, at about 6 p.m., Mindy Tran, a cute, vivacious little girl, wanted to go out for a bike ride to visit a friend just down the street on Taylor Road in Rutland, a quiet neighborhood on the northeast edge of Kelowna. At 6.30... Annie Tran, Mindy's mother, called out for Mindy to come home and take a bath. Mindy said, later, Mommy. These were the last words Annie Tran would hear from her little girl, and Mindy biked off toward her friend's house. At 7 p.m., Mindy had not come home yet. Annie set out to search for Mindy. She finds Mindy's bike on the front line of the friend's property, of course. So, but where's Mindy? Nowhere to be found, and no one's home there either. My biggest fear in life is this. Yes, yeah, it's every parent's biggest fear, Absolutely. I do believe. I, I hope so. Yeah, well, yeah, for sure. So Annie searched the neighborhood and uh, unable to find Mindy, she called police at 7.52. After speaking to Annie Tran and others in the neighborhood, police began searching for Mindy. 45 minutes after Mindy disappeared, police received an anonymous call about a man in a vehicle, a white van cruising around Mindy's neighborhood trying to entice children with candy. How, like the call was not traced. Caller unknown. So, mm. hmm, yeah, I I don't know if is that like someone trying to throw the cops off. I it, it seems so. Um, like if you're trying to script, oh, what could I like? Oh, there's a guy in a white van. Yeah, like that's so a formula. But here the thing is, other people saw that white van <laughs> later, so we'll get into it. They didn't see what. This was suggested, but mm -hmm. anyway. So at 9 p.m., police called in a helicopter to assist in the search, flying over Rutland and Mission Creek Park. 
uh, Mission Creek Park is a 92-hectare wooded area in Rutland and close to Mindy's home. Mm. There was no sign of Mindy. Word went out to the local media, radio and TV about the missing girl uh, and missing eight-year-old and makes big news in, in pretty much any community. Uh, the time of Mindy's disappearance was based on the statements of witnesses who had seen Mindy riding her bike up and down Taylor Road around 645. One witness testified that he saw Mindy lay her bike down between two rocks at 350 Taylor Road and walk in the direction of 360 Taylor Road around 650. The witnesses went into their house for a moment, uh, and when they came out, there was Mindy was no longer there. A man named Shannon Murren had rented the house uh, at 360A. Uh, actually, he was boarding with people known as the Mugfords, uh, and that's... Uh, where Mindy had been headed. Hmm. So Brimer and Stephanie Mugford had an eight-year-old daughter, Charmaine. Charmaine and Mindy were best friends and often played together at both girls' homes. So, of course, Mindy's just going to go see her buddy. But the Mung Mugfords, Mungfords, I'm sorry, <laughs> Mugfords, had gone out around 6 p.m. and Shannon Murren was left sleeping. Shannon Murren, a drifter with a criminal background and significant jail time already behind him, was first interviewed by RCMP at 1.40 a.m. on August 18, 1994. In his interview, Shannon gave Constable Severson uh, an account of his whereabouts on the evening of August 17. He said he woke up from a nap between 6 and 7 p.m., had a beer, walked up to McDonald's because a friend had told him to look for a stolen bike there. Then Shannon went to see his friend Bob Holmes at his place. He told Severson that a few people had been there and they all saw him. When he and Bob became aware that Mindy was missing, Murren claimed they went out searching for Mindy on Bob's motorcycle. Shannon suggested that Severson talk to all people he'd been in contact that night at Bob's place, and he said he wouldn't talk to them again until they'd been interviewed by RCMP. It is unknown whether Shannon kept that promise or not. The others were not interviewed until August 19th, a day and a half later. So a lot of time elapsed yeah. between the, uh, the actually, when they actually had a conversation with those folks. Shannon also gave details of his own criminal record to Corporal Severson in his interview. So he'd been in Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick for a while, mm. which, you know, if you're a straight up kind of guy, you don't end up there. That, that is not a nice place. After the RCMP interviewed Murren's friends, even though they didn't like him, uh, their focus shifted to the search for the white van that people had seen driving slowly through the area. Mm. At daybreak on the morning of August 18th, a number of volunteers gathered in the Rutland neighborhood and began to search a broader area on foot and in cars. Searchers looked for Mindy, scouring the brush in Mission Creek Park. They searched backyards in Rutland, they spread out to areas such as Big White Road, East Kelowna, and even Kelowna Airport. And my voice will crack every now and again in this one because I have had a cold. Boo-hoo. Oh, I thought it was puberty. It could have been that. All right. On August 19th, police received a report about a white, a white man forcing an Asian girl into a brown pickup truck. So now that we have a white van and a brown pickup truck, so things are getting confusing. Yeah. As they were following up on that tip, there were now 140 searchers looking for Mindy in an area of 100 square kilometers. On August 20, 
The search now included 200 volunteers, 30 police, and RCMP dogs, and they'd covered over 250 square kilometers searching for the little girl. That's a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hard to keep uh, organized. Yeah, well, on August 21st, it became very disorganized because there was now 400 non-police volunteers, and it became too unwieldy for the cops to manage (laughs) effectively, and it was called off. So, I mean, I can understand the, uh, uh, it's, it's a, a pro and a con. It's wonderful that there's 400 people searching, but I can't understand how it, yeah, there's not very, enough cops very to manage it. Yeah. You couldn't keep track of it. Yeah. So they called off the public part, but, uh, still 20 RCMP members and search and rescue personnel and the helicopter continued to search late into the night. But on August 22nd, 1994, to the disappointment and horror of all invested in the effort, the search for Mindy was called off. Yeah, was that only five days? Yep. Hmm. Mindy Tran had vanished. Hmm. Like a lot of distance could be covered, you know, and if she's been jammed into that brown truck that people had seen or a white van, like they could cover a lot of ground in that amount of time. And so searching is kind of pointless. Hmm. I guess so. Yeah. So on August 24th, a reward fund of $25,000 was set up for Mindy's return. The reward was later increased to $35,000. On August 25th, police announced through the local media they were looking for the white van uh, people had reported seeing in the neighborhood. Among the searchers who were unwilling to give up looking for Mindy Tran was 68-year-old Rex Fitzgerald. He was a civilian coordinator of the initial intensive search for Mindy Tran. Fitzgerald was a well-respected member of the search and rescue community and had assisted in over 500 searches, many successful in his 46-year-long career. Wow. Wow. That's quite a lot. Yep. He had trained some of the police involved in the search as well, so he trained them in techniques in search and rescue. So this is obviously a a well-experienced and skilled individual. Yep, totally. He's a pro. Yeah. He couldn't let Mindy's disappearance rest. I can see that. Uh, When everyone else went home, Rex carried on by himself for months, sometimes with the help of friends. Uh, The police were busy chasing down leads, but still no sign of Mindy Tran. As Robin Warder, another Canadian podcaster, says, the trail went cold. Mm. Rex Fitzgerald, who knew police were still searching, uh, had been known to use a divining or dowsing rod in his searches. A friend suggested he try it in this case, which he did. So it's kind of a weird thing, but... Yeah, I don't uh, know how I... Yeah, this guy claimed he got, like, feelings from the rod that would lead him rods, these two rods that would lead him to places, but... Oh. Uh, yeah. All so, right. this gets weirder. On October 11th, 1994, Fitzgerald went to work searching for Mindy again. On the advice of a psychic woman who was talking to police, Fitzgerald was compelled to look in Mission Creek Park near Mindy Tran's home one more time. So the cops gave him some hair from Mindy's hairband. And, okay. Uh, yep. Because he wanted to use those that against his divining rods for focus, he says. Okay. Yep. So he did that and immediately felt a pull into a wooded area in the park. He claimed it led him to the area where he found some red cloth. Mm. So he's got a buddy with him too. So it's mm-hmm. not just, he's not just there by himself. Yeah. Mindy had been wearing red. Fitzgerald noticed a foul odor in the area. Oh, no. Accompanied by his friend, he looked further. 
Sticking out of the ground was a shoe, matching the description for one of the shoes, you know, Mindy Tran had been wearing mm-hmm. on the evening of her disappearance. So Fitzgerald poked around a bit more with a stick and revealed a human leg in the shoe. Oh, man. Fitzgerald and his friend immediately notified police of what they'd found. So they had to hike out and go call the cops. Yeah. A psychic and a diviner had done what the police could not, find Mindy Tran. That's just like I don't I don't I don't even know what to make of that because um, it's bizarre. It, it's bizarre. I'm not one to I don't believe in psychics and I do not believe in the power of a divining rod. Yep. But both of those things together seem to have pulled it off. You know, so part of me has some that initial skepticism of like, oh, how convenient that was this, this guy. The but in the same vein, it's like with his experience, yep. I have to give some weight and credit. And yeah, it's like maybe uh, the divining rods really had nothing to do with it. Um, my in, my instinct would tell me that it was if, if he's been searching and searching and searching. Like it, uh, I think he just happened to. He talked a lot about things like negative energy and feeling wonky and all that kind of yeah kind of stuff. Yeah, so. and I don't I don't want to just dismiss it, but uh, uh, at the end of the day, but you're gonna dismiss I'm it. I'm gonna dismiss it. <laughs> at, the, at the at the end of the day, yeah. he found Mindy, Mindy, yeah. which is what I guess the key. Like that's what's yeah. important out of it. So. No, totally. So now they know where she is. It's horrible, but oh, now they know God. where she is. She yeah. had been buried under twigs and sticks loosely. And, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the little girl who had gone for a bike ride over two months earlier had been found, buried in a shallow grave, uh, if that's what you want to call it, uh, very close to where she'd last been seen. Mm. Mindy Tran's family now knew for sure they would never see their daughter alive again. Oh, my. It was a poor family. Yeah. On October 13th, an autopsy was conducted by pathologist Sheila Carlisle. Yes, the same one who performed the autopsy on Tanya Smith in the Abbotsford killer case. We covered that in episodes two and three. Dr. Carlisle determined that Mindy's death was a homicide. Her nose had been broken in at least two places. Mindy had been strangled and her killer used Mindy's own shorts as a ligature. Mindy Tran's body was in an advanced state of decomposition, so evidence of a sexual assault was hard to prove at the time, Mm -hmm. right? However, as Mindy's body was naked from the waist down, Dr. Carlisle concluded that in all likelihood, Mindy had also been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. I would conclude that as well. Yeah. In my not not professional opinion. Yeah. I I would conclude the same as well with equally as... uh, as firmly? Unprofessional. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Opinion. Yes, we, we are not professionals. The community began to grieve. Here's a clip. Pan's body was discovered last week. A memorial garden has sprung up overnight. 400 of her fellow students have come to pay their respects. We wanted each of the children to have an opportunity to say goodbye to Mindy. Uh, she was really close to a lot of us. Uh, she was such a tremendous role model. And uh, it's, it's, it's symbolic for them to say goodbye. Do they understand what's going on? I think they do. Is this important, what's happening here today? Oh, I believe so, very. Yeah, it gives the, the kids a chance to, to say goodbye for the last time to Mindy. Why is it important for everyone to come down here and put a flower down here? Because it's to show that we care for Mindy and how we feel. 
don't give kids enough credit for understanding, but I think this is a very good way to keep it open. It's a lot easier for kids to deal with. Can you start healing now? I think so. Yeah, it'll be good for the community, especially for the trans family. Mindy's uncle reminded the community that the trans had come to Canada from Vietnam for a better life at Mindy's memorial. Here's a clip of that. In 1979, Johnny, Annie, and Mimi left Vietnam and came to Canada, seeking a better life for themselves and a more secure future for their children. In April of 1986, a baby was born into the family. The special little girl was Mindy, and each day of her life, she brought the family joy and happiness. This was not what the Tran family had signed up for. RCMP Sergeant Tidsbury, the lead investigator on the case, did not believe that there had been a vehicle used in Mindy Tran's disappearance. He, despite all the white van reports, as well, police uh, concluded that a suitcase was used to transport Mindy's body because a lot of people had said they'd seen a man with a large, heavy suitcase on the evening of Mindy's disappearance mm-hmm. walking toward Mission Creek Park. Interesting. Oh, yeah. That, yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They began interviewing suitcase witnesses and later put out a press release asking for public assistance in locating a man with the suitcase. At the time... The focus of the RCMP's attention was put right back on Shannon Murren. He kind of looked like the suitcase guy. Mm. He lived at the house where Mindy Tran had gone missing that day, remember? Yep. So cops felt that there were some inconsistencies in his statement, and they set out to get him to talk. All they had at the time was circumstantial evidence. They needed something more concrete. Using what has become known as the Mr. Big technique, here it is again. Jeez, an, yeah. under, an undercover operation was set up to snag Murren. Ten podcasts. <laughs> and how <laughs> Three many t- Mr. Bigs. Yeah, exactly. It just seems to be a very, like, the RCMP's go-to thing. Yeah. So if you ever, like, all of a sudden have this guy with who's very clean cut with a mustache in your life trying to get you to do things <laughs> that are criminal... <laughs> Uh, Hi, my name's it's, Brian. It's, it's, you, it's probably an RCMP <laughs> officer. How do you feel about providing me with some criminal activities? Right? And he uses like the F word way too much, <laughs> unnaturally. Anyway, back to this. Uh, we've mentioned uh, this controversial investigative technique a number of times, mm-hmm. and uh, this is another one. And I, the more research I do, the more I find it. So interesting. I, yeah. I would like to do a case without it. Frankly. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, in November of 1994, police put their plan into motion as part of how Mr. Big works. They offer criminal work for a fake crime syndicate, right? As we mentioned. So uh, Shannon was offered $250,000 to kill a woman and her child, but he refused. Interesting. Okay. Undercover operatives even offered Shannon Murren a trip home to Newfoundland for Christmas so they could talk to Shannon's friend Bob Holmes about him without fear of Murren stumbling in on the conversation. Okay. So while Murren was away, Sergeant Tisbury visited Bob Holmes. And so he visits Bob Holmes as a police officer. So not trying, not as part nope, of the Mr. Big Sting. Not part of the Mr. Okay. Big Sting, right? Fascinating. So, you know, the Mr. Big folks are other people. Mm-hmm. 
Tidsbury won't obviously tell Bob Holmes that because he may have to use it in, Maybe he's <laughs> on, on this cat. Maybe he's there as uh, Mr. Small. I don't know. Anyway, uh, in his capacity as an RCMP officer, he provided information that convinced Holmes that Murren, in fact, was the killer of Mindy Tran. Mm. Holmes was an ex-con. He was infuriated. You know, cons don't like child killers or rapists. Mm -hmm. Criminal code of ethics. So Holmes was one of Murren's initial alibi witnesses, and now he recanted his previous alibi. Mm. Murren had convinced Bob Holmes that cops were out to get him and that he had no real alibi for the time when Mindy went missing. But he did not murder Mindy Tran, he told Bob Holmes. He needed Bob's help, so Bob lied to the police. So now Bob's recanting, right? Yeah. Of course. I would just as soon kill the bastard who did it myself, Holmes told Tidsbury in a taped conversation. Couldn't agree with you more, Tidsbury replied. That's an RCMP officer, so the, by the way, folks. The officer is saying, I yes. couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. I in just regards to murdering the bastard who did yes. it. Yes. Okay. Mm. Yep. Now Holmes admitted he hadn't actually seen Shannon Murray and Murren until 9 p.m. on the evening of August 17th, giving Murren a full two hours to commit the murder of Mindy Tran, get rid of her body, and get to Holmes' place. Ample time. Wow. On August 5th, 1995, Murren's associates, uh, these three guys, Holmes included, talked with Tidsbury, and they wanted to get Murren to talk. They were intent on confronting him that night. Because they wanted, to, they wanted to get this child killer off the streets, right? Help the cops. Yeah, well, I mean, like, good, but... Yep. Okay. So the three told Tidsbury they, were in, they intended to get a confession from Shannon Murren or convince him to take a polygraph test. So, so not the police. Not Those the police. Three, oh, okay. These three creeps. Okay. If they found it necessary, they would even take Mr. Murren to the Mindy Trans gravesite. Okay. Horrible. Yeah. Holmes said there was a possibility the police would find Murren tied to a tree at the location. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Very open. Other investigators who were privy to all this information uh, asked uh, Tidsbury what would happen if these people killed Murren. And Sergeant <laughs> Tidsbury said they would not hurt him, although they might slap him around a bit. Oh, that's bizarre. Right. Other cops suggested that uh, surveillance be arranged as they were not comfortable with the plan. Sergeant Tidsbury said he had told the men not to do anything stupid. Oh, well, that should do it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Sergeant Kilali, another investigator, said, you're not dealing with three rocket scientists here. Uh, she did not believe uh, they had the ability to refrain from carrying things too far. Mm-hmm. Sergeant Kalali then spoke to her staff sergeant, but nothing was done to stop what was about to take place. Okay. So what happens next? The 911 calls start rolling in. <laughs> at 9.44 p.m., there was a complaint of a fight in progress at 1170 Elwyn Road. This is where Shannon Murren was now residing with Bob Holmes. When uniformed police arrived, unaware of the details of the ongoing investigation... Uh, the subjects had already left the residence, but there was blood everywhere, so they're concerned for somebody right away. No kidding. Yep. At 9.53, there was a second complaint of a loud disturbance at Mission Creek Park. Oh, boy. What happened at Mission Creek Park? Well, that's where Mindy Tran's body was yeah. found. Yeah. 
Holmes and his two cronies had taken Miss, Mr. Murren to Mindy Tran's gravesite where he was badly beaten after already having been seriously assaulted by the trio on the way there. Mm. Before he passed out from the beating, Murren made a verbal confession to the killing, saying it was all in a letter he'd sent back home to Donnie and Marie Oliver. Yes, that was their real names, Donnie and Marie. I wonder if they had good teeth. <laughs> anyway, uh, they were in Newfoundland, uh, but, you know, this conf coerced confession... You don't beat the shit out of a guy and get a confession that will never make it in front of a jury, which it never did. As we have stuff like that, as we've heard so much about with uh, a Guantanamo Bay and totally. the validity behind yeah. uh, torture. Like, for yeah, you can get some somebody to say anything by waterboarding them or something. In this case, they beat him with, I think, some heavy clubs or something like wow. that. They really did a number on him. Apparently, he was almost beaten to death. Wow. So, um, yeah. I'll and confess the, to anything if you just try to take away my candy. This torch. Anyway, so the letter that uh, Murren claimed he'd sent back home to Donnie and Marie never materialized. Mm. Uniformed officers mm. responded to the park and saw a significant amount of blood, so there's more <laughs> blood there, and could hear screams coming from the wooded area of the park. Yeah, you know, yeah, where Mindy's grave grave yeah. site was. The uniformed cops got the situation under control as best they could, but hearing the racket on the radio and knowing it had to involve Murren, Tidsbury's partner, Corporal Webb, responded, and seeing their case was going sideways, the RCMP special investigator uh, intervened by taking the unusual step of res assuming responsibility for the assault complaints. Mm. So Webb told the uniformed officers to remove themselves from the area. The uniformed officers later testified that the scene was not secure prior to their leaving. Huh. Okay. Murren was taken to the hospital, and the three amigos, Holmes, Dunn, and McDonald, were taken to the RCMP detachment. I had to really ponder the word detachment earlier. Yeah, I, I, I witnessed that whole it, ponder. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't know what happened to me because yeah. I know that. Well, I, I was going to say RCMP club, or sorry, uh, camp. It's not In a, the camp? Yeah, RCMP camp. I don't think they refer to their or, station as a... No, it's not a camp. Yeah. Anyway, the treatment of Holmes, Dunn, and McDonald, the three who just beat up Shannon Murren, uh, was really unusual mm. at the RCMP detachment. See, I said it. You did. I did. Well done, Mike. None of them were arrested, booked, or fingerprinted. Before being interviewed, they were all placed together in the soft interview room. So there you go. That's mm. what what you want to do is give people a chance to get their story straight. Well, put them, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. then they can, you know, get their stories together. Sound and detective work. They were served coffee and donuts because they're probably hungry after they wow. beat the shit out of somebody. And it is Canada, so Right, donuts. donuts. Probably Timmy's. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. They were permitted to shower in the RCMP members' private locker room as opposed to the cells. Get out of here. Although they were covered in Shannon Murren's blood, their appearance was not noted or photographed before they were allowed to shower. All three were interviewed by the same officer. Guess who? Sergeant Tidsbury? Yep, that's him. Uh, after each was interviewed, he was put back with the others in the soft interview room where all three were allowed time to consult before the next interview commenced. Like this just, like, this just epitomizes questionable 
detective work. I'm not an officer. I'm not. So like, you're, I, you're I, not a, you're not even remotely. If you want to get bogged down in the semantics, I don't even think I could spell officer. But my point being, like, this really epitomizes like questionable detective work. Does it? Like, it's the textbook. Like, it says. Set, whatever it says like to a, do, they have done the reverse. You you keep them all in different rooms and different people interview. Oh, put them all together yeah. and have one person do. We the, should have Captain Obvious here dropping a mic, <laughs> yeah. right? Visualize it. Visualize it. Yeah, it's it's a podcast, so sorry. Well, maybe that's what will make the icon for this. I don't know. Arr, I'm a captain. <clears throat> Pong. Arr. No, that's the other awesome podcast, True Crime Garage. Oh, that's the captain. Oh. And Nick, they're great. Uh, in an effort to uh, obtain DNA from Murn, the cop seized his bloody pants, his bloody jeans at the hospital. Okay, take the guy's pants. Yeah. On January 17th, the day Shannon was released from the hospital. So he was in the hospital for 12 days. Oh, wow. Yeah, so wow. he That was, showed just like the uh, severity of the beating. They really thumped him out. Uh, he was interrogated for 12 hours. Why? Because the night of the event on January 5th, uh, where he got beat up, he had pointed a loaded firearm at his three buddies after they questioned him uh, sharply about Mindy Tran. So he was held on a firearm charge. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can, I mean, I, in the police, the cops stayed there, I, uh, uh, in what their, they're trying to do, I, I can I can understand them being like, well, whatever we got to do to get him off the streets. And, yep. You know. On February 1st, 1995, RCMP put out a media release confirming that they had arrested a suspect in the murder of Mindy Tran on January 5th, this being Shannon Murren. This media release from the RCMP stated that Shannon Murren became a suspect within the first 24 hours of Mindy's disappearance. His alibi was initially corroborated, but had since fallen apart, and it also mentioned that he was being held on a firearm charge. Mm. Sounds like a guilty guy, right? Mm -hmm. Police wanted to test Mern's DNA obtained from his genes that they'd collected in the hospital against three hairs they'd found inside Mindy Tran's underwear. Mm. The only other source of DNA, Mindy's clothes, had been washed. The other only... Uh, other physical evidence that could link Mindy to her killer would be these three hairs. Uh, and they were scooped up in soil with Mindy's panties when they found her. Yeah. The conclusion of the RCMP forensic lab in Vancouver was that these three hairs were not conclusively consistent with Shannon Murn's hair. So not willing to take no for an answer, um, all these hairs were sent to the UK with uh, the DNA for analysis. So months later, DNA samples come back as a match for Mern's maternal DNA. No case based on this type of DNA profiling had yet been successfully tried in Canada. So the cops needed a confession. They needed to solid up yeah. their case a bit. Uh, they knew the firearm charge wouldn't keep him in jail for long, and they needed to keep track of him. They thought he'd bolt when he got out. I would have too. Mm -hmm. So they began to cultivate informants within the jail where Murren was being held. Between 1995, February, and January 1997, they had a total of nine people willing to inform on Shannon Murren. 
The police felt their best shot was a jailhouse informant named Douglas Martin, who claimed Mr. Murren confessed to him within hours of meeting him at a BC prison. Okay. Mr. Martin, who had more than 100 convictions on his record. A hundred. hundred. Wow. So very honest guy. Yeah, yeah. Said that Murren divulged two key pieces of information that only the murderer and police knew at the time. That Mindy's body was found covered with twigs and dirt, not buried, and that her running shoe was discovered at the scene. Interestingly, both of these facts had been already reported in the media. So, okay, yeah. Okay. Not exclusive to right. criminal and criminal. Not hold back evidence like yeah. we've talked before. Yeah. There was none of that, it seemed, in this case. Regardless, the Crown felt they had their man. And Shannon Murren was arrested in jail and charged with the murder of Mindy Tran on January 14th, 1997. So he had been in jail for a full two years at mm. that point. Well, okay. From the, uh, From gun, the gun charge. On the gun charge. Okay. Right? And, okay. Shannon Murren's jury was to be the first jury in Canada to be presented with mitochondrial DNA or mtDNA evidence. Hmm. So on August 4th, 1999, almost five years after Mindy Tran was murdered, the trial of Shannon Murren began. More than 80 witnesses testified at the trial that lasted nearly seven months. Oh, wow. Immediately, holes were poked in the DNA evidence and doubts were raised over cross-contamination of samples, raising accusations of police tampering to bury Shannon Murren, guilty or not. A lack of evidence gathered at the scene also plagued the Crown. The scene itself was now tainted with the accused's own blood after his being beaten there. Mm -hmm. Many of the witnesses had criminal records, and the numerous stories they had told police threw the veracity of their testimony into question. Of course yeah. it did, because yeah. everybody told a different story at different times yeah. for different reasons. The jailhouse informants were a joke, and there were many favors given to these men after Tidsbury's in intervention. Charges were stayed. Some got transfers to prisons of choice, shorter sentences, help with parole, relocation money, clothing and rent allowances, bills looked after, cash paid, and other special privileges. So some pretty significant rewards for... For testifying. Yeah. So. Tidsbury himself had Douglas Martin's car fixed and put him up in a motel. Good for you. Well, nice guy. Yeah. So the prosecution's uh, case is in a shambles at this point. Yeah, it's embarrassing. To but me. it gets worse. Oh. <laughs> the police testimony about the night of Murren's beating in particular helped the defense more than the prosecution. Mm -hmm. So all the cops testifying essentially helped the defense. Yeah. Uh, Tidsbury specifically looked as though uh, they were, he was out to get Murren, whatever the cost. Yeah, I mean, it does... You do get that feeling hearing all these things. Yeah, well, here's how it went down in court. So Sergeant Tidsbury denied any prior knowledge of the beating administered by the three of Mr. Mern's former friends. Mm. But we already know uh, from what we've already heard that RCMP officer Sergeant Kalali mentioned earlier would contradict him, which she did from yep. the witness box. So the defense, uh, Mr. Wilson, the attorney, went after Sergeant Tidsbury, saying, the defense suggests that Mr. Tidsbury lied to you on the stand and that the defense suggests that he was caught out. So, yeah, he was totally caught in a lie. Absolutely. 
Uh, I don't think he was ever charged with perjury over that, but interesting. Um, also, uh, Mr. Murren's attorney said, I say the evidence presented by the Crown is not only thin, it is worse. It's because it's been tampered with and it is unreliable. Yeah. Yikes. Well, and, you bring into question the honesty of the main officer. Right. In, in tra- that's just going to put everything. Two words, Mark Furman. Right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. 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 So, I don't know, maybe maybe had the guy done it by the book, things might go a different way, mm-hmm. but we can see what's going to happen here. So, Tidsbury's links, interestingly, uh, to other wrongful convictions. Uh, he's, he's already oh, wow. been involved in two of those. And one was the case of uh, David Milgard. He was re-interviewing uh, people uh, in that case later on when Milgard was appealing. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty well-known case in Canada. Yeah, he got off of yeah. that slaying of a 20-year-old nursing student later, yeah. but it wasn't due to anything that Tidsbury did for him. <laughs> So Tidsbury was poisoned to the prosecution's case, yeah. like he, he scuttled it pretty much. Yeah. On January 17th, 2000, the jury began deliberations in the case. On January 25th, 2000, the jury returned with a verdict that shook Kelowna, but didn't surprise me when uh, when I read read through yeah, re- reading up to it, I'm yeah, sure you exactly. were. Yeah. And I'm sure it won't surprise our listeners. Shannon Murren leapt up from his chair and clapped his hands when he heard the verdict in the murder trial of eight-year-old Mindy Tran. They said, not guilty. Shannon Murren was a free man. He said, and I'm going to use a Newfie accent because he was a Newfoundlander. No offense to Shannon Murren, I just like that accent. I knew today would come, he said outside the courthouse. I can't believe it. Well, I can believe it. I got two really good lawyers. That's an interesting... Right? So he said, I can't believe it. What can't you believe? You can't believe you get off? Yeah. And why would you say that? And not like, not like because I'm innocent, but because I have two good lawyers. Right. Well, interesting. Okay. Interesting. When questioned by the press, the RCMP said they had no plans to reopen the investigation. They simply stated the appropriate person was charged. Mm. Murren said he was going back to Newfoundland, so I get to do the accent again. I'm going home to be with my family. I had a girlfriend there five years ago. I don't know if she's still there. We'll soon find out. As for the trans, he says, these are Mindy's parents he's talking about, I just feel so very, very sorry for the trans family, but there's nothing I can do for that, right? Nothing he can do for that, right? I don't know if he's just like callous or is he just an ineffective communicator? I don't know. Well, I don't know. Uh, He's probably angry that he's just gone through this. If he was an innocent guy, you'd be angry afterward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if you're not an innocent guy, you'd be callous. Yeah. And cocky. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't live in this man's head and I wasn't there. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Shortly after Shannon Murren was acquitted in the death of Mindy Tran, police in Edmonton confirmed that Murren has not been eliminated as a suspect in the death of six-year-old Corrine Punky Gustafson in 1992. Oh, wow. 
However, another man was later tried and convicted for that that crime. Okay. Yeah. Murren did go back to Newfoundland, uh, but someone else soon joined him there. This is where it gets interesting again. Her name was Kathy McDonald. Just two weeks earlier, Kathy McDonald was a member of the jury that had acquitted Shannon Murren. You gotta be shitting me. Nope. Wow. The two claimed they were in love. I, I don't know when they fell in love. Did they just Because it's only two weeks since the trial ended. Well, they were in trial for... For seven months. But right? the jury isn't supposed to be talking to the defendant. Correct. Maybe. So either like that love came from just staring. Maybe making googly eyes at uh, them. Wow. How sus- suspect is that? That's kind of weird. It's weird. It's weird. I, I mean, it's weird. It's not not weird. It's not not weird. So the two claimed they were in love and started writing Shannon's memoirs about the case. As far as we know, they're still together. Uh, they were when I watched this thing from 2009 that we're just about to talk about. I haven't read Shannon's book. I don't even know if it exists. I looked for it, but no dice. Hmm. Anyway, uh, there was an RCMP investigation into the handling of Mindy, the Mindy Tran murder investigation, of course. Yeah. The results have not ever really been made entirely public, oh, but really? uh, but uh, it didn't paint their investigation in this very, <laughs> you don't say. very kindly. What I've learned, oh boy. In Newfoundland, later on in the 2000s, uh, another man named Joe Oliver was charged with the slayings in 1993 of a man named Dale Worthman and his common-law wife, Kimberly Lockyer. And Oliver claimed he was not the trigger man, Guess who he said the trigger man was in 1993? Mark Furman? Shannon Murren. Okay. Shannon Murren, who he'd known for most of his life. So. Wow. Right? So this guy just keeps coming up in these weird places. Mm. So from the statement of facts in Joe Oliver's plea deal, which happened in 2009, uh, he said... Oliver was to lure Worthman to a remote area under the guise of he and Murren showing Worthman some stolen property. Oliver said he assumed that Worthman would be beaten, not shot. Although Oliver knew that there was going to be a gun present, he said he thought it was just to make it look real. Uh, Because Lockyer was present, when he went to pick up Worthman, uh, he brought both of them to the clearing off Tucker's Road, a rural road in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, in Newfoundland. Hmm. Mr. Murren came out of the woods and shot Dale Worthman in the chest area, the statement said. And then Murren shot and killed Lockyer. Okay. Oliver said he waited for Murren uh, down the road while he did whatever he did, I guess buried these people. Yeah. Oliver and Murren slept in the couple's apartment that night, and they apparently returned to the scene the next day. This is all from the statement. This is not, I'm not saying this actually happened. This is just what Oliver said happened. Oliver said he helped Murren to clean up the area by throwing blood-covered rocks and trees into the woods and marking an area which he believed was a grave, the statement said. While Murren was not commenting publicly about this case, uh, he has in the past denied any part in the shootings of Worthman and Lockyer. And I'm going to do the accent again. Oh, please do. 
I never harmed anybody in my life with a weapon, Murren told the CBC News in January 2007. The Crown says in the statement of facts that it cannot confirm Murren was involved in the shooting. While we accept Mr. Oliver's version that he was not the shooter and that another person was involved, it is entirely Mr. Oliver's uncorroborated word that the shooter was Mr. Murren, the statement says. Oliver went to prison for manslaughter, and no second person has ever been charged in the murders of Worthman and Lockyer. It's just all so crazy. Right. So, it's not over yet. Murren's, Wait, there's more. There's more. Murren sued the RCMP in 2009 for what he'd gone through with the Mindy Trant case, and the case was settled out of court later that year. They paid money because they done the wrong thing, he said. They committed criminal acts. Mern also believes the Mounties didn't want the case to go to trial. If it had have gone to court, everything would have come out, he said. And the way the RCMP is looking right now across Canada it is not too good. They didn't want that. What about Mindy Tran? No justice for her. Just a memorial where near where her body was found, with a tree that people filled with stuffed animals still, in memory of the little girl lost. Holy this, crap. This, this is one clusterfuck of a... Right? Uh, like it, and, that, it, and sadly, as the last statement makes, the forgotten part in all this... Is the little is kind girl. Of, is Mindy Tran. Totally. That poor, poor little innocent girl. And the, and the family. Yeah. Like, my, my goodness. Like, like if you're, uh, if, you, if anybody is a police officer and you're listening to this, please just do it by the book. Yeah. I know, I know many of you do. Many of you do. Probably and the vast majority. The vast majority of, of police do it by the book, but just do it by the book. Like this whole thing, uh, just rings of making of murder. Right. Like, cause it's just kind of like your gut tells you like, oh man, there's, it, it seems like this is the person. Right. But then the, the police work. Right. It's like the OJ thing too. Yeah. It, it's like, it's, it's the work put into the, 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 the police work put into it's it. Like that is what actually defeats them. The, and, and so it's just, like, and I just sit there and think about that poor girl's family. Yeah. Like, the fact that the case isn't being reopened, like, their their daughter was well, taken from them. They can't try this guy again. Yeah. And the RCMP... Are uh, saying that he's, it's the guy, whether right. he's found. It's, but just, I put myself in the family's shoes, and then just yeah. sitting there, like... Their daughter was taken away from them. And they have. And there's nobody. No justice. No justice for it. None. Sure, if if he was the guy, he got the shit beat out of him. That's not nearly nope. going to make up for losing their daughter. And But again, for all we know, he very well may legitimately be innocent of it. What about the white, the white van? The white van. Because more than one person saw that. Yeah. So what about that? Yeah. Was that was that white van carrying Mindy Tran? Yeah. Was the suitcase guy like not even real? Yep. Like, so is it is it a case that the police just got blinders early yeah. and uh constructed things to support their theory? Sure. 
I mean, a lot of the reading I did, I did a reading on a couple of sites. One is mindytran.com. And I don't know what stake the person who put that site together has, but it's, it's kind of disjointed. Everything is all over the place. Check it out yourself if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, com. It's quite an old looking site. Mm-hmm. It's not web 2.0 even. I don't think it's web 0.5, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's very old looking. And I went through that site very carefully because I felt like I had to pick through what this person was saying. Cause there was, there was clearly an agenda that they had. Yeah. And then there was another site, uh, an injusticebusters.org, I believe it's called. Okay. And there was counter evidence on that site that which. Countering taught, the Mindy Tran site? No, like, yeah. Like countering what the police were saying. Oh, okay. And so I think. I think there was mention that his girlfriend, and I'm not entirely sure, no, I'm not 100% sure, but she may have been involved in the writing of that's what was on that site. Oh, okay. So, you know, yeah. like I, I, finding the truth in this, in this case without having like actually gone and like <laughs> done like a reconstruction and all this kind of crazy investigation myself, the evidence just like isn't there. Yeah, you know, and, and yeah, this the sad part of it all again is this poor little girl. Yeah. So these three hairs are found, yeah. right? Yeah. And they do this my, uh, mitochondrial DNA test and they end up destroying the evidence in the testing. So the the defense couldn't even do their own tests. You know? So like it was just oh one one thing after the other, yeah. after the other, after the other, after the other. So, yeah. and it being the first time that that type of DNA was brought before a Canadian jury is what made that, made it so difficult for people to get their head around, especially if it's like a cop is lying and, and you know, there's cross-contamination. I don't know how important that actually is because his, his DNA did match, Right. So I don't know what a jury today would say. Yeah. You know, maybe they would say, okay, that cop's a dink. And maybe they would convict him today. I don't know. But, but even, even that, you have to, like, again, the, the Furman. Okay, like, you have to start questioning, okay, like, was that planted? Yep. And that's the thing. That's You know, that once you bring that question. Reasonable it, doubt. Yeah. Then everything yep. else starts to crumble. Yep. And the, this is where, you know, like... This is where the justice system kind of breaks in a way. Yep. So we've seen it so many times. Yeah. Anyway. And then Robert Durst can go, you know, cut up a body oh afterward and get away with that. So uh, uh, was a, uh, wow. Yeah. Just anyway. go don't we're not gonna do a podcast. Just go watch the Jinx. <laughs> the Jinx is amazing. Yes. I love that show so much. Oh, yeah. And and Mindhunter, you have to watch Mindhunter. I know I've talked to everybody. I'm always whenever anybody mentions it on any of the true crime sites that I go to, I always say I've watched it three times through already. <laughs> I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> but it's so you're good. proud. I'm concerned. Yeah, I look like a miniature um, Edmund Kemper. Anyways, oh, my glasses and mustache. I don't, like, is that something you want to publicly state? Well, my wife even says that. <laughs> Well, and she, yeah. Know, okay, she's yeah. qualified. And she did buy me a hat that makes me look like Ed Gein for Christmas. So. Oh my God. 
Anyway. If you guys don't hear from me after this podcast, yeah, just question step, it. Just step into the closet question, here, Scott. Question it. Yep. Does this rag smell like chloroform to you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> Thump. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's the case and, of and, – and, and let's let's not like – we mentioned it a bit, but Mr. Biggs. Yeah. Like I, 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 I feel like I've got to like bring like, – yeah. We could do like a whole podcast yeah. based on Mr. Big cases in Canada. Because I want to completely trash it, but in the same vein, I, I don't because – actually I mean, convict some people the, that the second The second case we covered with that. Yep. Um, again, questionable, but got genuine confessions out of it, it, it seems did. like. And so yep. it did actually end up helping catch, but yeah, it's just such a, it's a tactic that is so controversial and, uh, doesn't seem certain that it's going to generate the it, results needed. Yeah. It's or, going to create more questions. Yeah. It's like, it's, it feels like entrapment really. It it does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, maybe one day we should just do a full, like, you know, assessment of the Mr. Big. Yeah. Uh, we should just like subtitle all the Mr. Big cases. <laughs> or maybe I'll write a book on the Mr. Big stuff. Ugh. I mean, I'll, I'll Mr. Big that. I don't even know what that. Yeah. So we've got a bit of a promo uh, to play here. And it is Mike from The Murder Mile. Check out his podcast. He's a, a UK podcaster. And all the murders take place within this mile. So that's the murder mile. Mm. So it's interesting. So here's Mike. Welcome to the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. My name is Michael. And each week I shall take you on a guided walk of hundreds of untold, unsolved and long forgotten murders. All set within one square mile. Proving that, if you dig deep enough, you'll find that on every street, in every city, there's a killer on every corner, death on every doorstep, and homicide in every home. Murder Mile is investigated using original police files and eyewitness testimony, with authentic sounds recorded at the murder location itself, and is accompanied by photos, videos and maps to make you feel like you're actually there. A new episode of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast is released every Thursday on almost every podcast platform. Thank you. Enjoy your day. If you'd like to learn more about this and other episodes of Dark Poutine, check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com. If you have any story ideas, questions, comments, or just want to say hi, you can reach us via email at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and tell your friends about us. Please subscribe to us on our favorite podcast directories, your favorite. <laughs> uh, I need to fix that because I always say our. But we're not going to tell you what ours are, yeah. but you got to find them. Yeah, exactly. So if you're so inclined, it'd be awesome if you left a five-star review and comments on iTunes. Every little bit helps. We're even on Spotify now, so that's kind of cool. Spotify. Spotify. So don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Have a good night, folks. Thanks for letting us fill your ears with some dark poutine. Mm -hmm. Ears. Ears, potatoes.